Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Crane, and I'm not killing people, I'm killing boys. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and I go both ways. And welcome to this episode of Queer by Candlelight. We're going to be discussing the 2009 film Jennifer's Body, written by Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kusama. We are going to discuss the entire plot of this film, so if you care about spoilers, simply do not listen. The film opens with Jennifer watching a workout video on TV. Her room's really pink and there's a lot of fallout boy posters. We then see Needy, which is short for Anita, watching her through the window. Also, are we going to address the fact that there's just a horse in her yard that is never mentioned again? Okay, sorry, continue. (laughs) Maybe it's just like, I don't know, maybe she's a horse girl. Yeah, but that doesn't explain her having a horse that is (laughs) never mentioned Oh no, dog, it was the 2000s. Things were weird. <laughs> um, and then we go to another scene where Needy is in a mental hospital with a voiceover saying, Hell is a teenage girl, which is a reference to Sartre's no exit. In the cafeteria, a nurse tries to get her to eat more, but then she kicks the nurse very aggressively and tells her to shut up and spits on her. I remember her spit was really yellow for some reason. <laughs> it's like that's such an interesting detail um they then drag her into a solitary cell for assaulting the nurse the voiceover then explains that she used to be normal but was institutionalized after a string of killings then shots of a small fairly rural town are shown and a voiceover explains that the town is called devil's kettle because of a nearby waterfall where the water goes into a whirlpool and never comes out scientists have tried to figure out where it came out but they couldn't Needy says in her voiceover that she, her best friend Jennifer, and her boyfriend Chip used to be just their yearbook pictures. Needy is watching Jennifer do a cheerleading routine at a pep rally, and her voiceover says that people found it weird that a popular girl like Jennifer would hang out with a nerd like Needy, but she explains it away by saying sandbox love never dies, which is definitely the first of many hints that these two are in love or are in some sort of romantic relationship. And then uh, some random girl in the crowd calls her lesbigay for waving at Jennifer, which, okay. <laughs> That's such an amazing insult. It's so um, great. I would cry if someone <laughs> called me that in high school, but now that I am out as a lesbian, I'm like, yeah. 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 I just, she didn't even say lesbian, she said lesbigay. <laughs> After the pep rally, Jennifer tells Needy that they're going to a show with a local bar, Melody Lane, that night because she thinks the lead singer of a band performing there, the band is called Low Shoulder, is hot. Needy says that she promised Chip that she would hang out with him that night, and Jennifer complains by saying, cross out Needy, and makes a little X in the air. Needy eventually agrees, and Jennifer reminds her to wear something cute. That night, Needy is trying on clothes, and her voiceover tells us that Jennifer meant something very specific by wear something cute where she had to look acceptable to hang around with but couldn't look cuter than Jennifer, and she also couldn't expose her cleavage because that was Jennifer's thing. Chip watches Needy try on outfits and complains that her jeans are too low by saying, I can see your womb. (laughs) Horrible choice of words. Horrible. I hate that. That makes me feel so icky. Yeah, that's why I bothered to write it in our little outline. (laughs) Chip and Needy have some cute little banner and start kissing, but when Needy somehow automatically knows when Jennifer has arrived, she pulls away. Jennifer calls up for her, proving her right and setting up that these two are somehow mentally linked in a supernatural way. Or maybe they're just, like, really gay for each other. Yeah, that too. But, you know, that's supernatural (laughs) in, like, a fun, cute way. Mm Mm-hmm. Chip then complains that Jennifer controls Needy, but Needy says that they just have everything in common, so that's why she always goes along with it, even though Chip comments that they have nothing in common. Jennifer and Needy start teasing each other and lightly pushing each other on the shoulder until Jennifer pushes Needy into the wall. Chip complains to Jennifer that she always kidnaps his girlfriend, and she says that he's just jealous. The two arrive at Melody Lane, which Needy complains is not very glamorous, but it's the best place Devil's Kettle has. 
Football player Craig flirts with Jennifer, but Jennifer says she's too pretty for him. Needy points out a foreign exchange student named Ahmet is in the crowd. And then Roman, a guy from the police academy, walks up and flirts with Jennifer. And it's very clear that they've hooked up before. Also, he's played by Chris Pratt, which was kind of a jump scare. It actually was. Like, I was like, hmm, is that? And I was like, oh, God, no. Please. (laughs) But made sense for the character. Sure. But, you know. Really typecast. Yeah, for sure. But you don't really need to typecast when you play yourself. No. (laughs) (laughs) Is that too bold to say? (laughs) As the band arrives, Jennifer comments on how hot they are. But Roman calls them the F-slur for wearing eyeliner. However, Jennifer says she likes how stylish they are and wishes there were more people who dressed like that in their small town. Kind of looked really hot in the eyeliner, honestly. You would say that. I know. Jennifer goes up to talk to the band. And Needy protests about going to talk to them, but Jennifer gives her a pep talk about how women have all the power and men are just morsels. Foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. The lead singer introduces himself as Nikolai. Jennifer goes to buy him shots, which she says are 9-11 themed. Very odd behavior. It's the 2000s. And it's this writer, I feel like. Yeah. Needy asks how she's going to get the alcohol when she's not 21, and Jennifer says that she'll just flash the bartender. When the girls walk away, Nikolai tells another band member that Jennifer is the one and that she's definitely a virgin. Needy overhears them and goes to yell at them, saying that Jennifer is a virgin, assuming that this will make them less interested. Needy then intercepts Jennifer, telling her that the band means trouble and that they were talking about her being a virgin. Jennifer responds by saying that she's definitely not a virgin, apparently having just had anal sex with Roman. The concert starts and Nikolai forgets the name of the town. The band sings a delightfully early 2000s pop punk ballad sort of thing called through the trees truly an atrocious song in a way that only early 2000s pop punk bands can achieve (laughs) the girls hold hands and smile at each other in the audience gay gay is gay or okay (laughs) stop stop it no i hate that movie you know i hate that movie Then Needy notices that the band's equipment has had an electrical malfunction and has caught a curtain on fire. And soon the bar is totally on fire. Needy grabs Jennifer and brings her to the bathroom where they climb through the window. Jennifer seems almost catatonic and people are very visibly burning to death behind them, like fully on fire. Yeah. Nikolai walks up and talks very casually about the situation and invites them into his van, which he says will be safe. I have a question here. I want to know if Nikolai and his band set the bar on fire. Because I feel like they did, but the movie never directly, like, says that. Or I could see that. I feel like he was just too casual about this. Yeah. No, he really was. He came out and he was like, so, like, how, how are you ladies doing? You know? And I was, I was like, like, boo. Like, in the background, there's a man on fire. Yeah. It was definitely very casual. So, Nikolai then gives Jennifer a glass of alcohol and drags her into his van. Jennifer says she wants to go, causing Needy to mostly stop protesting, but her voiceover says she knew something was wrong, even if Jennifer said it wasn't. Jennifer goes with the band while Needy stays behind, and... Needy says in her voiceover that Nikolai is like a dead tree she saw once when she was young, which was skinny and twisted and evil. Needy arrives back home and calls Chip to tell him about the fire and about Jennifer going in the van. Needy is clearly more worried about Jennifer, but Chip points out that all the people dying in the fire are a much bigger deal. Then the doorbell rings and Needy says that she's really scared because she's home alone and her mother's working a late night shift. She opens the door and no one's there, but the audience can see that there's a shadow of someone walking in the house behind her. She hangs up the phone call with Chip and realizes that someone is there. Why would you hang up the phone? This was truly a dumb horror protagonist moment for her. Like, stay on the phone, and then she puts the phone down, like, on a table and walks away from it. No! Yeah. If there's, like, a weird doorbell ring and no one's there, I'm definitely hiding in the bathroom with a knife. 
honestly. Yeah, on the phone. Yeah, like... No, this was not smart behavior. Worst thing would happen is, like, you don't have your phone and it rings and you're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah! Because yeah. then they're going to be like, oh, shit, there she is. Stab, stab, stab. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, <laughs> bleeding out. <laughs> uh-huh. That's basically the plot of Scream. Anyway. <laughs> Needy then goes to turn off a dripping sink faucet. And when she turns around, Jennifer is suddenly behind her, totally covered in blood. Needy tries to check in on her, but Jennifer just smiles creepily and starts eating a rotisserie chicken out of the fridge. Needy tries to stop her, but Jennifer roars and vomits of black goo that is clearly supernatural and appears to be made from some sort of spiky substance. Needy runs away from Jennifer and tries to call someone, but Jennifer slams the phone away from her and asks her if she's scared. Jennifer then pins her to the wall, kisses her neck, and then leaves. The next day at school, everyone is gossiping about Needy and Jennifer having been at the fire. Needy has a flashback to when she and Jennifer were little girls playing together, and Needy kissed Jennifer's wound better. Sandbox love. It was so cute. Then, Jennifer turns up to class looking completely normal, to Needy's surprise. Jennifer says she's overreacting, but Needy points out how many people died. Needy shows all the black goo stuck under her fingernails as evidence that she wasn't making up how Jennifer had been acting. Their teacher, who inexplicably has, like, a full, like, piracy hook hand, which is very iconic of him, uh, mentions that several students and teachers had died in the fire, specifically mentioning that Ahmet, the foreign exchange student, had died. Imagine partying with your teachers. (laughs) I simply would not do that. So weird. Mm Mm-hmm. That's my only that's my only takeaway from this. <laughs> <laughs> like what do you mean students and teachers yeah. were there? If I saw my teacher I'd leave. No, out of there. Yeah. Hard. One time I saw my teacher at brunch and I hid. Yeah. Under I can't the menu. Be it's worse at a bar though. Yeah. Like if I saw my professors at a bar, Mm-mm. it's over. I have a strictly professional relationship with all of them, which is I go to class and I don't talk to them. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) Okay, I do talk to them, but in office hours, which is also professional. Yeah, office hours is different. I'm a professional. (laughs) Chip and Needy talk in the hallway and Needy explains to him about how Jennifer had acted the night before. Chip explains it away, but Needy says that it was evil. Chip says that she should go to the school therapist, but she says she's not lying or exaggerating. Then, local goth boy Colin comes by to check if Needy's okay. Chip's surprised that him and Needy are friends, but she says that they're pretty good friends because they have a creative writing class together. Chip's clearly jealous and says that he can be emotional too, but he isn't obvious about it. He's so male manipulator. Yeah, little. I'm not a big fan of Chip in this movie. Like, he's also got that ugly floppy haircut, which makes me not trust him. Yeah. Apologies. (laughs) Alternatively, Colin, if he was a butch lesbian, I would be all over him. (laughs) But we don't need to talk about that. Anyway, one of the football players, Jonas, is mourning the death of his teammate, Craig, on the football field, and Jennifer checks on him. Jennifer says that she was probably the last person to talk to Craig ever and that Craig's last words were that Jennifer and Jonas would make a great couple, (laughs) which is uh, nonsense to the highest degree. Jennifer then puts Jonas's hand on her boob and says to feel how her heart is broken. She asks him to come with her, saying it's what Craig would have wanted and escorts him into the forest next to the football field. Man was just horny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No thoughts, head empty yeah he said my friend just died but boobs (laughs) boobs okay (laughs) the two start kissing in a forest and jonas says that something feels wrong and that she feels abnormally hot and then every type of animal that you think lives in a forest kind of shows up and then watches them like they're in a center and then all like it's not like cinderella type it was just like they're just staring. It's real weird. Yeah. I still don't know exactly what this is supposed to convey. Because, like, I'm not aware of, like, demon folklore that they, like, summon animals or anything. Me neither. I was, That's what I thought they might have been referencing. But, like, I just don't know anything in depth about it. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. But it, it is very, like, oh, spooky. So, you know. Yeah. 
Like, oh, there's a possum. <laughs> or was there a raccoon? I, it was a raccoon, I yeah. think. That would cause me to stop kissing someone, to be fair. You know? Like, that's pretty weird. Yeah. And he's, like, confused. But then Jennifer takes off her top and then rips his top in half. Which, honestly, if someone ripped my top in half, I'd be mad. I'd be like, that costs money. Literally. And it was, like, his, like, gym, like, Yeah, it Letterman. was, like, his football. Yeah. yeah. I, no. This, I would have been like, no, no. This is creepy. This is concerning. Don't rip my shirts up. Jennifer then says that Jonas shouldn't miss Craig because he'll see him really soon. And he's briefly confused before Jennifer suddenly unhinges her entire jaw, revealing sharp teeth, and starts to eat him. One of the teachers hears Jonas's screaming from the parking lot, but mistakes it for mourning. At her house, Needy is listening to the radio and feeding her pet Weasel Spectre, who literally never appears in the film except for this one scene, which is kind of wild. Over the radio, a news reporter says that Low Shoulder is now local heroes because they saved a bunch of people from the fire. Then Nikolai, the lead singer, gets the name of the town wrong again. Back at the school, the teacher who heard the screaming finds a deer eating Jonas's intestines in the woods. Concerning. <laughs> Needy's mom walks into the kitchen and says that she had a nightmare, sleeping during the day due to her night shifts. She says the nightmare was about people trying to crucify Needy, and she worries that she won't be there one day when Needy might need to be saved. The scene then cuts to Jonas's parents arriving at the scene of his body. Then Jennifer is swimming naked in a lake, presumably near the site of Jonas's death, to wash off the blood. It was kind of hot. It was. I don't want to be that person. No, but. it was like every time I saw Megan Fox on screen, I went, she's so hot. She's so hot. She's just so pretty. Yeah. And like, they really tried to make Amanda Seyfried not look hot. But they, it didn't work. No, it they, did not succeed. They just gave her like weird glasses and they, they called really it said, a day. said, oh, you have glasses? Ugly now. Yeah. That's, you said, that's nerd. every 2000 movie <laughs> and it never works. She's Mm-mm. so pretty. They she's don't so want pretty. you to think that, but she is. Literally. Anyway, every time Megan Fox is on screen in this movie, I'm like, wow. It's it so bad. It's just, she's, she's so pretty. Yeah. She's kind of yeah. weird in real life. Oh, yeah. But True. she's so pretty. Mm-hmm. So that night, Jennifer calls Needy to tell her that she feels really good, like she has been kissing a boy for the first time. Needy says it's insensitive to be this over-the-top happy when so many people have died recently. Then Needy gets a call on the other line, and Chip tells her that there's been an emergency and that she needs to meet him in, like, 15 minutes. While Jennifer is waiting for Needy to get back on her line, she burns her tongue with a lighter and it heals itself. When Needy gets back on her line, Jennifer immediately opens by saying that she feels like a god, and then she says that Chip has looked really cute to her lately. Cute or appetizing? Mmm. Interesting. (laughs) Chip meets Needy in the park, and Chip tells her that his neighbor, Jonas, was found mauled in the woods, and the news hasn't really leaked yet, but he heard because he lives so close. Needy says that it can't be a coincidence that this happened so close to the fires. Chip then says that the bad luck has to be over soon. The next day at school, Jennifer walks down the hallway in slow motion, smiling, wearing bright pink, but everyone else is still mourning. She looked really good in this. Oh, too. yeah. No, <laughs> like, it was this scene earrings. and the swimming scene. Yeah. I was like, um. Like, and back to back, I was like, damn. Uh, you really I'm wanted so me to homosexual. die. <laughs> <laughs> Needy's voiceover talks about how the national news is going crazy over how sad the town story is. And people are singing through. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it was the same song. Yeah. Did you just realize? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. And people are singing through the trees at a candlelit vigil. That day in class, the teacher says that it's the one-month anniversary of the Melody Lane tragedy, and Jennifer, suddenly looking very tired, yells out, Boring. The teacher says that Low Shoulder is donating 3% of their profits to the families of those who died because that song has become the unofficial anthem of the town's healing. Needy questions why they're only donating 3%, understandable, and says that they seem greedy, 
but the girl who called her a lesbian gay at the beginning and is now wearing a low-shoulder t-shirt says that the band are heroes. Needy complains that she was there and that the band didn't save anyone, but the girl says it must be true because it's on Wikipedia. You. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to call you out like that, no, but, but actually I, I did. Okay. Anyway, after class, Needy asks Jennifer if she's okay because she looks tired. Jennifer says she feels awful and looks, quote, like one of the normal girls. Needy asks if it's due to PMS, and Jennifer says PMS was invented by boy-run media to make women seem crazy. So iconic, mm-hmm. honestly. I Sometimes she's right. Anyway, <laughs> Colin walks up to them and asks Jennifer to go to a midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Watch our episode on that. To which Jennifer responds that she doesn't like boxing movies. After he's walked away, Needy says that she really likes Colin, which seems to change Jennifer's mind, and she asks Colin to come to her house and watch Aquamarine, that one mermaid movie that was popular (laughs) back then. Then, Jennifer flirtily says hi to Chip. Needy and Chip decide to go on a date that night, and Chip notes that he picked up more condoms. That night, Chip and Needy are making out in Chip's bedroom. The scene is cut between them having sex and Colin driving and looking for the address Jennifer gave him while listening to rock music. Colin eventually finds the address, but it's in a neighborhood that's still being built and appears to be completely deserted. There's a light in a second-story window, so Colin heads in anyway, despite no answer at the door. Smart decisions being made. Much like Jonas, this man, too horny. Yeah. You can't even trust the goth kids. No, Mm-mm. no. Colin hears music coming from upstairs, but gets scared by a crow flying out at him, and eventually finds Jennifer in an upstairs room with a lot of candles and music playing. Colin asks Jennifer why they're meeting in an abandoned house, and she says so they can play house. Colin starts to question why she's even interested in him, but she claims that she's been flirting with him all year and they start kissing. Colin then gets freaked out by a bunch of rats running by and Jennifer says that she thought he was into vermin because he's goth. Then she pulls his pants down. Jennifer's eyes suddenly change into looking sort of like cat eyes and she starts breaking his arms saying she needs him frightened. As Needy and Chip are having sex, Needy sees blood dripping from the ceiling and Jennifer crouching over Jonas's body like some sort of creature. Jennifer is then shown through her shadow only, killing Colin. Needy starts screaming and Chip asks if it's because he's too big. Stupid man. Dumb man. <laughs> Dumb man. Idiot. He's like proud of it too and it's like, well, if she's getting hurt... Why don't you stop? Yeah. My too big. Shut, Shut up. up. Shut up. God. Jennifer is then shown drinking blood out of Colin's now empty chest cavity, and the camera lingers on a set of rosary beads he was wearing as a bracelet. Needy freaks out and drives away from Chip's house. But as she's driving, Jennifer walks out on all fours onto the road like an animal, and Needy has to swerve to avoid her. Needy stops for a second, and Jennifer drops from above onto the windshield, cracking it. Needy drives away immediately and goes to her house, crying for her mother, who is at work, so she's home alone. Needy crawls into bed, only for Jennifer to already be in there, freaking Needy out. Needy screams at her to get out, but Jennifer responds that they always share the bed when they have slumber parties. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Jennifer then kisses Needy, and then Needy reciprocates and kisses her back, climbing on top of her. Needy suddenly pulls back and asks Jennifer what's been going on, and Jennifer says that she'll explain everything because best friends don't keep secrets. Jennifer explains that on the night of the fire, when she went in the band's van, the band turned out to be agents of Satan. There's a flashback to Jennifer sitting in the van, and the other band members question whether she's a virgin while Jennifer looks around the floor of the van and sees several books on topics like witchcraft and summoning demons. Jennifer reassures them that she is a virgin, assuming that they will want someone who isn't. When the van stops in the forest next to the Devil's Kettle waterfall, Jennifer tries to run, but they catch her and tie her up. The other band members question Nikolai about the ritual, which Nikolai tells them he found online, but Nikolai says they need to sacrifice Jennifer to Satan because it's so hard to make it as an indie band. 
Nikolai then stabs Jennifer while singing Jenny, I Got Your Number, and then tosses the knife into the waterfall. Back in Needy's bedroom, Jennifer says that the wounds she received should have killed her, but it didn't, while Needy says maybe they did. Jennifer says she's not really sure what happened, but she woke up and found her way back to Needy. There's then a flashback to when Jennifer appeared at Needy's house that first night. She says she couldn't bring herself to hurt Needy because she's such a good friend, but that she was so hungry. Walking away from Needy's house, she runs into Ahmet, who says he's lost and that no one knows he's alive. Jennifer then implies that she ate him. The flashback ends and Jennifer tells Needy that after she eats, she's basically unkillable. She stabs herself and the wound instantly heals. Needy asks Jennifer if she's been killing people, and Jennifer says she's been having such strange delusions recently, and that she needs to be careful because she thinks Chip's been having second thoughts about her. Needy tells Jennifer to leave, but Jennifer says they should play boyfriend and girlfriend like they used to when they were little. Gay. Gay. (laughs) Jennifer does decide to leave and jumps out of Needy's second floor window. The next day, Needy stands a little apart from Colin's funeral. I fully need someone to dramatically stand slightly separate from my funeral so that I look mysterious to my surviving family and friends. Because they're like, who is that? Who is that? There were happenings in her life that we don't know about. (laughs) At school the next day, while watching people put up banners from prom, the theme of which is through the trees, Needy's voiceover explains that how, even though that there was a memorial for Colin, no one could bring themselves to be that sad. They were all so used to it at this point and expected another body to turn up soon. Needy goes to the library to do research and finds out that Jennifer is a succubus, which is what happens when someone who isn't a virgin is sacrificed. Needy also reads that demons are the weakest when hungry and should be stabbed in the heart. Needy then also says she hasn't really talked to Jennifer since that night in their room. Then Chip walks up and says that he bought Needy's ticket to prom. Needy tells him he can't go to prom and that he needs to listen to her. Chip reads this as her breaking up with him and asks if this is about Jennifer. Chip says that he's really worried about Needy and that he loves her, but Needy tries to explain that Jennifer is possessed by a succubus demon. However, Chip maintains that Needy should seek therapy and returns to the topic of being upset that Needy won't go to prom with him. She tries to get Chip to promise that he won't go because she thinks Jennifer could kill him, but he doesn't really listen. This is a reoccurring problem. He keeps putting her down. Yeah. He's like, maybe you should go to therapy. And like, yeah, she should go to therapy because that's healthy, but um, not at the cost of not being believed about anything. Yeah. Like, damn. Her name is Chip, anyways. What a loser. <laughs> it's so early 2000s. Everything about this movie screams yeah. early 2000s. No offense to any Chips listening in. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're definitely Chips listening That's in. That's true. Uh huh. We can We, we can have cut listeners. That out. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's then a montage of people setting up prom in the gym and needy Jennifer and Chip getting ready. Chip's mom gives him a pepper spray because she's worried another boy will die at prom. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Because I'm like, wow, the rules are reversed. Yeah, true. It's just, it's so weird seeing it in reverse, you know? Because, like, no guy I know carries pepper spray. But all the girlies do. Oh, yeah, you gotta have your pepper spray. Mm Mm-hmm. Needy is wearing a truly horrendous bright pink poofy dress with a weird low waistline, very early 2000s. And Jennifer's clearly feeling weak and needs to feed again soon. Chip walks alone to the prom while Needy keeps an eye out at the dance for Jennifer. Jennifer, wearing a much cuter, less horrendously dated white dress, walks up to Chip and says she needs to talk about Needy and claims that Needy was cheating on Chip with Colin, and that's why she's been so upset about his death. Meanwhile, at the dance, the teacher announces that Low Shoulder will perform at the prom for charity. Jennifer says she's telling Chip about Needy cheating because she cares about him so much, and then she kisses him. At the dance, Needy angrily watches Low Shoulder perform through the trees. Jennifer and Chip are kissing, and Jennifer asks him to say that she's a better kisser than Needy, which causes Chip to stop, but then they keep kissing anyway. Needy seems to sense that Jennifer is kissing someone and sprints away from the prom. 
Jennifer escorts Chip into an abandoned indoor pool while Needy chases them down. Jennifer tells Chip that she feels empty and then kisses Chip again. Chip refuses the kiss because he says it feels too weird, so Jennifer pushes him into the pool and dives in after him, clearly about to kill him. Chip tries to climb out of the pool, but is pulled back in. Needy hears Chip crying for help from the inside of the abandoned pool and arrives in time to see Jennifer feeding on Chip's neck. Needy jumps onto Jennifer and pulls her away from Chip. Chip tosses Needy his pepper spray, which she uses on Jennifer, causing her to throw up black goo again. Jennifer then starts levitating above the pool, which Needy says is not that impressive. Jennifer and Needy start verbally flinging insults at each other, with Needy saying Jennifer is a bad friend. Needy questions why Jennifer wants Chip when she could have any boy, and says that it's because she's insecure, which is the first thing that really seems to get to Jennifer. Jennifer says that she's going to eat Needy. Needy says she thought Jennifer only ate boys, to which Jennifer replies that she goes both ways. Then, Chip stabs Jennifer with one of those pool cleaning nets on a long pole. Jennifer pulls out the pole and asks if Needy has a tampon. Then, she flees the abandoned pool. Iconic. Yeah, it was really iconic. (laughs) Needy cries over Chip, who's bleeding out on the floor. And Chip says that he should have believed her. Shocker. And Needy tries to call for help, but their phones won't work because they were submerged in the pool. Chip says he knows he's about to die, and Needy says that she loves him. Chip responds that he loves her too, and that she looks hot in her prom dress. I hate him. (laughs) Then he dies, and Needy screams and cries over his body. The movie returns to the scene that it first opens with, where Jennifer is watching a workout video in her bedroom. With presumably a horse in the yard, but we don't see it this time. She's also writing yum over boys' pictures in the yearbook. She turns out the lights to go to sleep when Needy crashes through the window and starts trying to stab her, screaming that Jennifer killed her boyfriend. Jennifer bites Needy in the shoulder. Needy says that she bought a box cutter to kill her, to which Jennifer calls her butch. She is not. Needy then says cross out Jennifer and cuts an X into her stomach, which quickly heals. The two levitate into the air and grapple. Needy then pulls the two's BFF necklace off of Jennifer, surprising her into stopping levitating, which allows Needy to stab her through the heart. Jennifer says, ow, my tit, and then dies. Then Jennifer's mother walks into the room and sees what happened. Iconic. (laughs) Once again. Oh, yeah. The movie then returns to Needy in solitary confinement at the mental hospital. She says that Jennifer bit her in the shoulder, which has caused some transference of power. She then levitates up to the window at the very top of the cell and breaks out of the mental hospital. As she's walking away, she sees the knife the man used to kill Jennifer in a creek in the woods, answering the question of where the water in Devil's Kettle Waterfall goes. Needy hitchhikes, despite the fact that she's obviously wearing an orange prison jumpsuit. She tells the driver that she's following a band and that tonight's going to be their last show. The credits start to roll, but then, in a post-credit scene, in a found footage montage over a rock song, the band arrives at their hotel and totally trashes their room, being a super stereotypical rock band. Then Needy arrives and kills them with the same knife. The police find all four band members dead in the hotel room. Fans run by in the hotel hallway as Needy passes the opposite direction wearing a hooded sweatshirt. We hope this was more entertaining than the Wikipedia summary. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back from our break. We're now going to do some fun little analysis of this movie. So first of all, this movie is gay, but in a very early 2000s way, I would say. It's well, okay. First of all, everything about this movie is the most early 2000s that anything has ever been in the history of ever. That being said, 
<laughs> the queer representation in this movie is not the worst thing I've ever seen. No. No, it's pretty... Like, it for a 2000s movie, I think it's pretty cool. It like, is cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, how many times do you see girls kissing each other in movies from the 2000s? That's true. However, you can also argue that they specifically showed them kissing in that style with that close-up on their mouths to yeah. appeal to a male audience, which would be supported heavily by the marketing campaign for this movie. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, both of these women are depicted as queer and still very, very well-rounded, three-dimensional, realistic within the context of the movie characters. Mm-hmm. I agree. I like that they didn't just make Jennifer a hot girl and needy just like a nerd. You know, yeah. there's so much more to their characters and I like I mean, it's obvious that the film just revolves around them and their relationship. I think they did do a good job at that. Yes, it is very much focused around the relationship between two women. And that relationship is both romantic, platonic. They care about each other very deeply. But it's also a very troubled relationship even before Jennifer is transformed. We see that maybe she's a little bit abusive towards her friend. And it's troubling but in a very, like, yeah, that happens in high school kind of way. Yeah. No, 100%. Alternatively, Needy very clearly values her as a friend, so you would imagine that she's also getting something out of this relationship. 100%. I think that's also, like, represented by her name, Needy, because, like, she needs, at least she thinks she needs Jennifer. You know, I think they have a codependent relationship almost Um, like they rely on each other a lot. And like, as you said, it's clear how much Needy values Jennifer, you know, even going as so like, you know, like at the beginning where Jennifer is like, wear something cute. You know, she's putting she's keeping in mind what Jennifer wants and her needs first Mm -hmm. before like thinking about her own style. Exactly. Yeah, these two women have a very complex relationship that the movie seems most interested in exploring that topic above any other. And I think that's why it resonates with queer audiences today, even though it is kind of suspicious, kind of early 2000s. It still has a lot to say that feels relevant and that feels true to a queer experience. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I mean, I think what's also really interesting is I was reading on Wikipedia. Thank you. That um, this movie takes some inspiration from another film that I think both of us would consider kind of queer, The Lost Boys. Oh my god, my beloved. (laughs) We need to do an episode on that. A hundred percent. We can have Adrian back to talk about it. That's so true. We did all three of us go see that movie. It's like a late night screening. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I also feel like this movie was probably inspired by Ginger Snaps, which came out in a very similar time frame and has, I would say, almost an identical plot, except between two sisters instead of two friends and with werewolves instead of demons. Love. That's so fun. I have not seen it. <laughs> it's fun. It's cute. I like this movie better, but mm-hmm. I like both of them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think this movie has very clear references in the realm of blatantly queer cinema. And this movie is also blatantly queer. Like, we've definitely reviewed some uh, movies and some media for this podcast where we're like, mm, it's implied to be queer. Or like, the creator is queer, but he couldn't like write that he was queer in the script or whatever. Um no, this movie's this is gay. Just gay. It's gay. It's gay. It's gay. The characters make out. Um, there's many references to being queer throughout yeah. the movie. Some of them very derogatory. But again, it's the early 2000s, so... Yeah. For a film from that time, pretty gay. Yeah. 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 And it's also, I feel like... 
I mean, definitely, yes, there is a lot of, like, male gazy scenes. Like, I I mean, I think it makes sense that every time she's, like, trying to seduce the guys she kills, it makes sense that that's portrayed in a male gazy way because that's how they're viewing her. But then, like, the kiss, too, that being very male gazy. But that part's still really gay. Yeah. Like, I mean, from... I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> you can't take that away from me. I don't care if it's for the male gaze. Yeah. I'm still going to value it. Mm-hmm. So this movie also has recently had a huge uptick in popularity, largely from sort of like feminists who are watching it and saying like, oh, actually, this has a lot to say about how women are treated by society. And it's sort of this like revenge tale, right, where this woman is murdered by a band um, for their own extremely selfish and dumb purposes and she murders them all and murders a bunch of other men that are kind of gross to her mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty enjoyable it's sort of about a woman reclaiming her power although obviously not in a mo- the most healthy way but probably that's not. okay you know so you've got to work through it sometimes yeah. no i agree and i think it's also really interesting because like you know it is a horror film and a lot of horror films are male dominated so this is kind of like turning the genre on its head um by putting the focus on female characters and kind of going away from like you know like you know that scene in psycho where like the woman's screaming and it's like oh, a woman in da- a damsel in distress you yes. know it's turning it around where the men are now the ones being terrorized Yeah, I, yeah, so horror is male-dominated, but in a very specific way where women are often still the focus, or they're, like, objectified. Mm -hmm. They're only the focus in that the writer puts them in peril, the audience expects to see them suffer in these horrible ways, but it's very rare that the women in horror movies, sometimes with the exception of the final girl, but even often the final girl has to go through all these horrible things. Um, These women just don't gain power. And this movie is all about Jennifer often using the fact that she is a woman to gain power over men. She says it in the very beginning of the movie. She says, I use my femininity to make men into morsels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Girl boss. (laughs) She is a girl boss because... People say girl boss about, like, any female character, right? But the original meaning was, like, a woman who gains power in sort of a negative way. Like, she's the boss at a company and, like, boo capitalism, right? I think Jennifer is a very girl boss character. She gains power by murdering people. Like, it's not like she's a good person. No. But she is kind of iconic. Oh, she is 100% iconic. And her, like, one-liners... They're so good. They're so good. She's so fun. (laughs) I feel like in some ways, not, like, directly, but I think it's also because it's, like, female-centered. It reminds me of, like, Pearl and stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, kind of. It's all about a female killer. Yeah. The, The woman is the slasher killer in this movie. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, that's I, that's something that you don't see coming because you're so used to the men being the slasher killer. Mm-hmm. Um, Had you seen this movie before? Did you know where it was going? I hadn't seen it before, actually, which is surprising. But, like, I had seen a lot of, you know, I've seen a lot of discourse about it throughout the years. And, like, I've seen all the TikTok, discourse, Tumblr edits. Not yeah, discourse. Discourse, oh. you know. <laughs> Um, so, like, I had a general idea of things, and I knew about, like, iconic scenes, you know, like, when she, like, burns her tongue and stuff, you know, like, I've seen those things, but this is the first time I've watched the film entirely in its whole, um, which is, it's always been on my list to watch, but I never actually got to it, so I'm glad I finally watched it. I inflicted upon (laughs) ye. Anyway, yeah, I, I think that it's become iconic because I think a lot of queer women are like hee hee murderous hot gay lady yeah. <laughs> like which think- we love right like yeah. we love to see a queer horror villain maybe it started out as a negative thing because of the Hayes Code but I think in modern day most queer people are like 
if it's a hot gay woman, she can have a little murder as a treat. You know, it's fun. It's slay. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Um, And I also feel like part of the film's popularity now is because it also does uh, appeal to straight women just because, you know, object like the male gaze and objectification and stuff like that. So they can like, they're like, yeah. Kill that man. Woo. <laughs> yeah, I think it appeals to most women. Yeah. I would argue it probably appeals to white women. Um, yeah, beca- I would agree. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you can speak to this more, but this movie is very white. Like, there are characters of color, but they're very bit parts. Yeah, and I, I think it's not funny, but literally the first guy she kills is a brown man. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I think... Because he was like, oh, I'm lost, right? He didn't really do anything weird to her, did he? No, he yeah. was just some random guy. Yeah. She said she was, like, starving. Damn. Sucks to be him. Yeah. But all the other white men kind of suck. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the... Well, no, I like Colin. He seemed nice. Yeah. He was just horny. He was very horny. <laughs> he was just horny. That was his downfall. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to return to the topic, um, going back to the fact that this is very early 2000s, I think one of the most negative ways that that presents itself is that this movie definitely is portraying these high school stereotypes in a very like white, traditional, suburban kind of way. And there is not very much room in the movie's vision for people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. It's it's also a 2000s movie. It is a 2000s yeah. movie, but, you know, we can't give it, like, too much slack. That's true. It's kind of suspicious. Like, there's definitely movies from, like, the 80s that have, like, main characters of color. Like, yeah. they could have if they, they wanted to. They could have if they wanted to, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Which is slightly sad but not unexpected yeah um they could have had more like poc in the background too like i feel like when i watched it it was like even the background um actors were mostly white if Mm -hmm. not all like i can't i can't really they were probably poc i just can't really remember the the fangirl was asian okay yeah i forgot about her She's there. Yeah. <laughs> She's there. She's there. They she said do much. They said we we fulfilled our diversity quota. <laughs> <laughs> they said we did it. Yeah. <laughs> I think something I remember I think I saw a TikTok about this a long time ago, so I'm bringing it up. But I think it's also really interesting how I mean, I think this movie plays a lot about puberty and stuff, you know, like even from the beginning line, like hell what was it hell is a teenage girl yeah hell is a teenage girl you know and and you can kind of see that too with like her having to feed on someone like once a month you know the blood and all that and that could be like a reference to like a menstrual cycle and they also kind of talk about like how she mentioned that one line like i think sometimes pms is just like it's made up made up a man's way of saying a girl's crazy yeah you know um so all that considered i'm saying um it's interesting how, like, you know, after she feeds on someone, the blood, the everything, she becomes more powerful, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, like, in direct contrast to how a lot of people in society view periods. Because they're like, oh, it makes you more emotional, it makes you weak. But she's like, nah, dog. I'm, I, I'm strong. I'm like, like, you know. Yeah, exactly. And if we're going to talk about Jennifer's transformation being a metaphor for puberty, I mean, the most obvious metaphor is the band's sacrifice as sexual assault, which, I mean, it's pretty direct. I would say that's not really hidden by the movie. That's what they want you to associate it with. Um, And, you know, it's not sexual assault, but it's the implication that a woman's agency is being taken away from Mm -hmm. her by a group of men and she's able to come back from that and she sort of converts it away from the men's intentions into her own because Mm -hmm. they expect her to stay dead and they didn't really do their research and they don't know what's going on but she's like no i'm more powerful now yeah they really googled one thing they well they did yeah nikolai says that he googled the ritual which is hilarious yeah 
But yeah, the the band are obviously supposed to be total creeps. But also, mm-hmm. Chip, suspicious. I just have to say it. Like, what's his deal? Why is he so manipulative towards Needy? I don't know. I feel like a lot of... I, I was going to say a lot of teenage guys are like that, but I think a lot of guys in general yeah. do have those traits. It was giving me... Have you ever watched The Devil Wears Prada? Yes. Oh, the evil <laughs> yeah. boyfriend of yeah. The Devil Wears Prada. That's, that's what he was giving you me. You are so right. My favorite Reading joke with my friends is that the boyfriend in The Devil Wears Prada is the real villain. Yeah, he is. He sucks. He He, he like, does not want her to succeed. He hates her having a career. Yeah. I, so... <laughs> I was like, same vibe. You know, yeah. they're both... <laughs> like they also look similar yeah the know? weird floppy early 2000s yeah. hair like oh oh <laughs> disgusting you know he wishes he was justin bieber yeah you know, justin bieber was probably like 12 at that time like <laughs> yeah but it's the same hairstyle as early yeah. justin bieber yeah it's yeah that's very he's manipulating her in a way that is not even necessarily, like, overtly a bad thing. Like, he might not even be aware he's doing it. He just refuses to believe her repeatedly, even though she's bringing up things that are very serious. Like, she's like, you are in physical danger. I am in physical danger. Jennifer was in physical danger, and I'm worried about my friend. And he just doesn't care. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And I I think it's the fact that he doesn't even realize that he's doing it Mm -hmm. you know i i mean i think that's something i've seen happen like i've seen men not even realize how they're acting towards a girl or a woman you know um and i think that's what throws me off the most is like he doesn't even realize that he doesn't value what she's saying and what she's feeling you know he's he he's just like this is my girlfriend she's hot you know, I mean, I'm sure he cares about her, but yeah, no, I it's get the fact that he doesn't realize. Yeah. Also, the womb comment. I'm like, damn. I like, hate that comment. I'm sorry. Reading king, just say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really suspicious. I don't know. So weird. I wouldn't let my partner talk to me like that. But anyway, <laughs> he really he was like, yeah, I study biology. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know a woman's anatomy. I know where the womb is. <laughs> like, okay, dog. Like, that was not the slay you thought it was. Oh, it was not the slay he thought it was at all. That's an understatement. Anyway, speaking of weird little dialogue comments, we need to talk about, like, the whole situation with the dialogue in this movie, which I think is a combination of Diablo Cody's very specific writing style and the fact that it's so early 2000s. Like, I think it's both of them that are just blended up into us watching it now and going, hmm, okay. Yeah. (laughs) There's definitely some comments that have not aged well. No. There's some iconic one-liners. And basically, all the dialogue in this movie is so quippy so over the top so like sharp and like biting yeah very like no one is giving like emotional monologues in this movie that doesn't happen it's to the point and it's like ow my tit you know yeah (laughs) ow my tit like you're not saying it like dumb enough you know like it's very (laughs) it knows what it is and it's like i'm not trying to be more serious than I am. Which I appreciate. It's a little quirky. It's fun. (laughs) But also some of it is definitely like, oh, yes, this was written in the early 2000s. Yeah. No, this is like one of those films when you're watching and every single scene you're reminded Mm -hmm. that it was written in the early 2000s. Yeah. You know. It needs some help. (laughs) Yeah, some help. (laughs) I need people in like 50 years to watch this movie. I need to know what they think. I want to see that. I want to know if they're like, I was born in the wrong era. (laughs) You know, there probably would be, though. They probably would be. 
<laughs> like this hideous like, high school. I wish I talked like that. It's like the tr- transatlantic accent yeah. of like Valley Girl. Right, where no one actually talks like that, but because people did in movies. They're like, oh, like, I wish I talked like that. I mean, the transatlantic accent's like kind of kind of cool. I know. I like, like it. Should fun. I be fancy? <laughs> yeah. It's just like a fake British accent. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so also, this movie was not well received or popular when it came out at all. And it's had a huge research in the last maybe like five years, which mostly the original failure has been credited to the way they marketed this movie, which was essentially they marketed it almost exclusively to teenage boys. And they were like, Megan Fox is so hot. She kisses a girl. You should come see it. Don't you want to watch hot women? And the teenage boys came and watched it and they were like, a feminist film? No, no thanks. Way. Absolutely not. Like, the men are the one who have to have pepper spray on them? No. Not allowed. We don't like it here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's been so interesting seeing that this wildly early 2000s movie has reached peak popularity in, like, 2020, you know? Yeah. I think when I was also going to re- through my Wikipedia deep dive, I was reading the, like, fl- the film critics, like, response, and one of them was like, this is a Twilight for boys. No, it's yeah. not. <laughs> Wow, someone misread this movie. No. Wow, someone he misread had fun this movie. It, but he's okay, saying, good. I'm Twilight glad you had fun. for boys. I was like, I there's no similarity. There's What's no similarity. The similarity. Like they eat humans. They eat humans. I guess that's the only thing I can think of. I can't. Like the dialogue in this movie is good, and there's yeah. no four hour baseball scene. <laughs> I don't. The baseball scene kind of iconic in my opinion, though. No. It, well, okay, it's iconic derogatory. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> one time I was playing beer pong with water. I don't think anyone wanted to waste money. <laughs> Real. Um, <laughs> but, so then my old roommate and I, we searched up the Twilight baseball scene and we would we would get ready to throw the ping pong ball like they would throw the baseball <laughs> the baseball in Twilight. Twilight. This is very iconic. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I think one example of the fact that the marketing strayed so far from the writer's original vision was that it had that iconic line, I'm not killing people, I'm killing boys, that was in the trailer, and it got cut out of the movie, and apparently the writer, Diablo Cody, was, like, not happy about this, obviously, because that's, like, a line that's gone viral online, like, people love it, it's hilarious, and it got cut from the film, because they're like, oh, we're trying to appeal to teenage boys, we probably shouldn't tell them that they're not people. Which, you know, they are people, but... Imagine not being told that you're a person. Wow, I wonder if that happens to... Imagine sitting through... (laughs) Like, any minority group, or uh, women, in the case of this film, or, you know... You know, one... How how long? Like, an hour, 30-minute movie... Telling you that you aren't a person. Wow, never <laughs> seen one damage. of those before. Um, anyway. So sad. <laughs> the worst. Definitely didn't have you to know, like sit through any hour and a half long church services no. telling me that. Or, you know, or just like society telling you that. Yeah. Teenage boys really have it the worst in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard for them. Yeah. So, at the end of every episode, we rank every movie that we see on a scale of 1 to 10, on a scale of how queer we thought it was, and how good the movie overall was. On a scale of 1 to 10 of how queer it was, I personally would give it, like, um, a 6 or a 7. I'm going to go with the 6.5. Sorry, I can't make up my mind today. Because... I think that it's very explicitly queer. It's kind of iconic, but it is a bit male gazy and very early 2000s. And it definitely says the F slur early in the movie, which I don't trust. 
Yeah, I was also, I was going to give it a seven um, for the same reasons, because it's pretty gay. Um, but as you said, definitely a little male gazy. Still gay, though. Oh, still gay. Definitely gay. So on a scale of one to ten of how good the movie is, I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, for basically the same reason. I think it is incredibly iconic in many very valuable ways, but it definitely has aged a little suspiciously. I agree. I was also going to give it a seven. Um, so I enjoyed this. it. I had fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's most 2000s things just don't age well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It I dampens think- the viewing experience now. Mm-hmm. I think what you said a second ago was very a good summary of the experience. It's fun. If you're sitting there with a bowl of popcorn, maybe an alcoholic beverage and two to three close friends, you're going to have the best time. But if you sit there and you're like having thoughts, not good. Don't do that while you're watching this movie. Yeah, because you're going to have a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So every week we connect our episode to the episode that we're going to do in the next. So we try to connect it through an actor in common, a theme in common, something that puts all of our movies into one long string of randomness. So this time our connection is going to be movies with a female killer. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Cover art by Dahlia Kumar. Music by Elizabeth Crane. Music recorded by Elizabeth Crane and Ryan Allegretti.